This is TechSnap, episode 401, for April 11th, 2019. Hello and welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting Systems, Network, and Administration Podcast. My name is Wes, and I'm joined once again by Jim. Hello, Jim. What's up, everybody? Well, it's April, and that means there's an exciting Ubuntu release just around the corner. I've been having a lot of fun evaluating playing with using Ubuntu 19.04 Disco Dingo. There are tons of improvements, but unfortunately, one thing I've been hoping for, well, it's not going to make it into 19.04, and that's installation support for ZFS. And, And really what we're talking about here is being able to configure root on ZFS right in the Ubuntu installer. There's work going on behind the scenes, but we'll have to wait till at least 19.10 to see it. And while that's a little bit disappointing, I still think it's a huge deal that doesn't get enough attention that Ubuntu is shipping ZFS with their operating system. It's compiled, it's ready to go. All you need to do is install a couple userland utilities. I'm curious, Jim, because I know you're both an Ubuntu guy and a ZFS guy. You're doing all kinds of stuff with both of those. Is ZFS en route ready for the mainstream? Should I be evaluating this? Because actually, I've got several system rebuilds. I'd kind of like your advice on on how I should be using ZFS. Well, ZFS en route is really attractive, uh, mostly for the ability to, uh, you know, take snapshots and and immediately roll them back. So if something goes wrong, you know, like in your your package manager... um, it doesn't happen that frequently with modern Linux distributions, but if you've been around for a while, you, you can probably think of a couple of times that something has just gone badly wrong when you're installing software and there's not a real easy way to get, uh, you know, the, the apt package manager out of its wedged condition where it says, you know, oh, well, you can't remove this package because I have a dependency for this thing that won't get installed and you can't install the other one because I have a dependency for that. And you're just like, ah, Stop. Yeah, usually I'm going. To, I'm trying to compile some software and installing a whole bunch of build dependencies, and suddenly I've gotten to myself in some circular dependency or installed a, a busted PPA, and I just I just wish I could roll the whole thing back. Yeah, and you know, doing a rollback, it's uh, it's kind of a nuclear option because you're. You, I mean, you are just completely going to travel back in time to when that snapshot was taken. No ifs, ands, or buts. Not you know picking little pieces in and out if a rollback is what you're doing. Um, you can also just mount that snapshot, you know, somewhere else and deliberately cherry pick pieces out of it. But literally, especially for root, just being able to say, okay, I'm tired of fighting with this and I just want to go back to when things worked. That's amazing. Um, the problem is that you know, until your distribution actually officially supports it, ZFS on root can end up shooting you in the foot um, as, as well as it can saving you. Because if something goes wrong after a kernel upgrade and you, for whatever reason, can no longer actually successfully load the ZFS module and therefore mount your file system, if your ZFS file systems are not root, you know, if they're just things that need to be loaded after the system as a whole boots, it's pretty easy to fix all that. Um, you know, it usually just boils down to like apt remove ZFS DKMS, apt install ZFS DKMS, and you know, you're done, it's fixed. But if that happens in your root file system with ZFS, you can't boot at all. Now you're having to, you know, boot from alternate media and, you know, do a CH root, you know, into your mounted ZFS from the alternate media that you booted from and got ZFS running from and imported your pool on and did a CH root into. And now you can begin to actually try to fix the problem. And if that doesn't make you break into a cold sweat, I don't really know why not. 
Um, so that's the kind of thing that you, that, that's, that's the reason why I don't really tend to recommend ZFS on root until it's actually fully supported, because you want to be sure that your distribution is saying, yes, we are so certain that even after kernel upgrade, all your ZFS stuff will work, that they're willing to support you installing it on the root file system. But just to be clear, is this you being worried about the quality of ZFS on Linux in general, or just the integration with the boot environments and, and all the scripts and management supplied by the various distributions? Oh, it's purely an integration issue because, uh, you know, ZFS itself, it's um, on Linux, it's loaded as a kernel module. It's not really built statically into the kernel itself. And um, particularly when you're using a, a DKMS build of Linux, you know, a DKMS is a dynamic kernel management system or module system. I forget. But what it basically means with DKMS is when you install a new kernel, uh, it accesses the DKMS source code and automatically recompiles the module for your new kernel and then installs that for your kernel. And if anything goes wrong during that process, you may be able to boot, but your kernel module won't have actually successfully built and you won't be able to do whatever that kernel module enables you to do. Well, if what that kernel module enables you to do is actually mount your root file system, then you're hosed. You can't boot at all. Whereas if, uh, you know, if the same thing happens and the file system that you're mounting using that kernel module, you know, is just something like, you know, opt or data or whatever that you actually can successfully boot the machine without needing it, then it's much, much, much easier to fix your issue. In many ways, it feels like we've we've come a long way, right? We, we may not quite be ready for day-to-day ZFS on root, but if you're using Ubuntu, you've got ZFS at hand. You don't even have to go the DKMS route, right? Uh, no, you don't. Not anymore. Um, if you're doing ZFS on Ubuntu and you're, you know, using Canonical's distributed ZFS, um, it is actually still a kernel module, but it's it's no longer a uh, a DKMS build. They are shipping the utilities in the package manager pre-compiled. And this is something a lot of people don't realize. Even if you're not using ZFS at all, if you're installing a modern version of Ubuntu, you are actually part of, you know, the whole license kerfuffle because Canonical is building the ZFS kernel headers directly into the default kernel. So even if you never actually do apt-get install ZFS and you have no ZFS file systems, you have still got those, uh, you know, cuddle licensed headers in your kernel. So, you know, the chocolate's in your peanut butter. Maybe you could touch on that a little bit more because ZFS, while it's one of the best file systems out there, it's also got maybe the most convoluted history. Yeah, so for anybody who's been, you know, living under a rock out there and hasn't heard about the license issue with ZFS and Linux, um, going way back in the day, ZFS was originally developed with the now defunct Sun Microsystems under uh, Scott McNeely's leadership. And uh, Scott McNeely absolutely hated Linux. I can testify to that because I had the great displeasure of hearing him rant about Linux for about uh, an hour and a half of what was supposed to be a 45-minute keynote at a conference and how, you know, everything in the open source world was just completely going to go to crap now that all we had was this Linux stuff and we didn't have our champion Scott McNeely to make everything great. But um, because there is this big uh, organizational hostility to Linux within, you know, the the old Sun Microsystems. Right. They were, they were still pro-open source. Just not pro Linux. Yeah, pro open source, but hated Linux. Um, they had a they had a really big case of not invented here syndrome, as well. So um, at any rate, you know, 
some really truly great projects came out of Sun Microsystems. Uh, you know, ZFS is one and DTrace is another. But when Sun started, you know, creating their own open source projects, they didn't want to use the GPL because they absolutely hated Linux and uh, they didn't like the GPL itself. And they also chose not to use one of the standard permissive licenses, uh, you know, like the BSD license or the MIT license or the Apache license, all of which are GPL compatible, although they are permissive. They're not uh, copyleft like the GPL is. Right. But by, by compatible here, you mean because they are less restrictive, you could then ship them as part of the Linux kernel without violating either of the licenses. Yeah, correct. It's kind of weird. I mean, effectively what happens when uh, when you mix BSD licensed or MIT licensed code with GPL licensed code, effectively what happens is right then for that particular usage, that point in time, you've effectively just kind of relicensed the MIT or BSD licensed code as GPL, which then makes it okay to be in the whole GPL project. Um, well, you can't do that with Cuddle because the Cuddle is itself a kind of copyleft license, but it's, it's really bizarre. It's a permissive copyleft. Um, you can actually turn Cuddle code into proprietary code, but you can't turn it into GPL code. So there's a conflict. You can't mix, uh, Cuddle licensed and GPL licensed code. Fast forward to uh, about 2010 or so when I first started to consume ZFS on Linux, uh, you know, back on Ubuntu Maverick. For a long time, ZFS had already been available on FreeBSD because the Cuddle does not conflict with the BSD license. And I had been a very happy user of ZFS on FreeBSD since its very first days there with 7.0 release. But uh, when I became aware of ZFS on Linux in 2010 with Maverick, that was a truly great day for me because I no longer had to choose between, you know, the uh, the Debian style package management that I had come to really love and rely on and greatly prefer or a file system that I could trust not to consume my data. Now I actually got to have both on the same machine. But, uh, you know, the issue is that still it's not that you're not supposed to put GPL and cut a license code in the same project. It's that you're not supposed to distribute it. Mm, so you can do it as a user. But distributions are prohibited from making it super simple and easy, or at least that's one way to read it. Yeah, well, so that's that's one of the things that people frequently don't quite catch the implications of correctly when it comes to, you know, talking about GPL licensed code is you're free as a user to do absolutely any freaking thing you want to. Uh, none of the GPL restrictions or the cuddle restrictions actually kick into play until you distribute that code somewhere else. So the way the ZFS on Linux project was getting around this is, uh, you know, they would just have their own repository. Uh, they had an Ubuntu PPA and uh, they had repos for CentOS and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And they would build their code as a kernel module and they distributed the kernel module. They didn't distribute the kernel and Canonical distributed the kernel. They didn't distribute any of the ZFS stuff. And if you as a user chose to add their PPA and put the chocolate and the peanut butter together, that was fine. You weren't distributing it. So th there were no license restrictions that would come into play at this point. And as that got more popular, uh, you know, th there got to be a lot more interest in something a little bit more stable and less hacky. And you started to see a lot of arguments about, you know, whether it would truly be okay to distribute, uh, you know, GPL and cut a license code. Most of the folks who are really, really super into uh, GPL promotion and protections 
uh, they get really, really angry when you talk about this. They say, no, you absolutely cannot mix Cuddle and GPL code. It's a license violation, full stop. Don't do it. You'll end up getting sued. It'll be terrible. Um, but, you know, there's kind of an elephant in the room here. Those exact same folks have spent, you know, the last 20 years not suing NVIDIA and uh, not suing, uh, oh, God, what was... Before AMD had the uh, the Radeon cards, what was the name of the vendor? ATI. ATI, yeah. Nobody sued NVIDIA. Nobody sued ATI. And, you know, those guys are shipping actual, no kidding, fully proprietary blobs as loadable kernel modules. So it kind of takes the wind out of your sails and you're like, you know, oh, no, you cannot possibly, you know, mix Cuddle and, and GPL code when, you know, in wide production, people have been distributing, you know, fully binary in GPL code for a long time. And uh, I did a lot of investigation into that myself. Uh, I co-authored a presentation with a uh, an intellectual property lawyer from my area, and he invested the legal side. And you know, I kind of gave him some pointers on you know where to look into the you know the technical parts of it. And uh, Robert came to the conclusion. He said, you know, I I think this would fly. Uh, I think you could probably get away with literally just building this statically right into the kernel and distributing it and uh, saying, you know what, sue me if you think this is wrong and uh, we'll go to court and hammer this out. Um, one of the issues is that the GPL, the, the preamble to the GPL is not a separate document. It is part of the actual license. And it includes really high flown, plain English language talking about the goals of the GPL and preserving user rights to software freedom and doing what they want with their computers. And, uh, you know, Robert, the, the attorney that, um, I investigated with, you know, for this presentation, he said, you know, I think you get that in front of a judge. I think you've got, you know, a really strong case that, you know, the decision is going to end up being that, you know, well, we do have some conflict here, but clearly doing this adheres to what the stated goals of this license are. So, yeah, we're going to let that go. Anyway, uh, <laughs> that presentation made some people extremely, extremely angry. Uh, somebody shot up like a rocket in the uh, the back of the audience. Um, one of the folks actually who's been involved in almost every GPL enforcement suit in history. But with that said, I clearly was not the, you know, Robert and I were clearly not the only ones to, to see this because Canonical a few years later just said, you know what? The heck with it. Uh, it's 2016 and we're just going to ship ZFS. And, uh, you know, again, there was a lot of angst, you know, Sturm and angst and drama and, you know, people threatening all kinds of things. But I think it's worth noting that, you know, it's now 2019. It's been, uh, you know, more than three years and there has not been a single lawsuit. And in fact, again, although the ZFS library itself is still uh, distributed as a kernel module, the headers are built statically into the kernel. So Canonical is not just distributing the kernel and distributing ZFS kind of, you know, separately. They are with every single kernel. They are distributing a kernel that includes, you know, it's just the headers, but still it's got a license code built directly into it and nobody has sued. And there's a good reason for that. All right. Well, Ubuntu's made it practical. There's, there's obviously still some concerns. If I'm the user, despite those concerns, why is ZFS worth using? You know, I mean, Linux has all kinds of different file system. What makes ZFS different? Well, so first off, you know, if you're a user, you don't have any of those concerns whatsoever, because as a user, uh, you haven't violated absolutely anything by using that code. Um, you know, if you're a distribution, you have some concerns about code that you're distributing. But as an end user who has received that code, 
No concerns whatsoever. None. You're within compliance on both licenses. I want to make that perfectly clear. The first thing that drew my attention to ZFS and made me absolutely certain that I wanted it is that it has an incredible record for keeping data safe and not corrupt. Um, When I first became aware of ZFS back in the FreeBSD days, uh, I saw Jeff Bonwick from, from Sun, his blog posts, and he mentioned experiences that he had had, you know, in during the development of ZFS when he was using it on a machine. And this machine had two hard drives in it, you know, configured in a mirror. And unbeknownst to Jeff, one of those drives was not only bad, but just incredibly evilly, horribly bad. Actively corrupting things. Yes, he had accumulated more than 10,000 on-disk data errors. Oh, my. And had not realized it because what was happening is, you know, ZFS actually stores a cryptographic checksum of every single block of storage on the drive inside that block. And every time you read or write a block, that checksum is, uh, you know, either created or calculated and the data is verified against it. So if you've got a hard drive that's corrupting data or if you've got, you know, a dodgy SATA cable that, you know, bits are getting flipped along the line, you know, in the wire on the way to the machine or whatever, ZFS is going to detect that because ZFS incorporates an extremely effective cryptographic checksum. And when you check your data against that checksum, the odds are incredibly low that you can have corrupt data or a corrupt checksum in such a way that they still match. One thing that stands out to me, too, is ZFS is actively checking stuff, right? Like you said, some file systems, you have to specifically ask to go check all the integrity for the data. But as you access data and as you write data, ZFS is doing that. Well, actually, it's a little worse than that. Uh, Most file systems cannot check this at all. Uh, File systems that have, you know, FSCK, file system check utilities, uh, they can go through and they can look at their metadata and see, does this metadata make sense? Or do I have like pointers that go nowhere or, you know, garbage that just doesn't fit the pattern of what I logically could expect here? But as far as your data goes, they have no idea. They're not checksumming your data at all. Uh, One thing that a lot of people tend to get a little wrong and they get excited when you talk about ZFS and data degradation and say, oh, well, that's not necessary because my hard drive already does that. And it's true that most modern hard drives do implement, uh, you know, hardware based uh, ECC checksums. So what this means is that when you store a block of data on the disk, the hard drive itself in firmware, it takes an ECC checksum of that data. But ECC checksums are not cryptographic. They're very simple. ECC stands for error correcting checksum. And an error correcting checksum can only detect one single bit flip guaranteed. If you flip two bits in that block, uh, the odds are incredibly good that what you'll end up doing is you flipped one bit from one to zero and another from zero to one, and the checksum actually still adds up. So you don't know anything's wrong and everything just flies. This is kind of some sort of a basic level of protection, but not at all sufficient to guarantee that your data is free from corruption. Exactly. And yeah, don't get me wrong. ECC checksumming is absolutely a lot better than nothing. But, uh, you know, for any of my uh, fellow graybeards out there um, that remember, you know, Internet or pre-Internet BBSs with, you know, dial up modems, um, you know, your modem used ECC checksumming. You know, you you had a parity bit with uh, every eight bits that uh, that went out down the wire. And if you recall, it was very easy to end up with a bunch of line noise in your all text, you know, communication that you had over these dial up modems. Well, that's the same technology that's protecting your data on a hard drive. So, yes, it's tremendously better than nothing. 
But when you're talking about moving literally gigabytes of data a day, you're still going to end up missing corruption that passes your weak ECC checksumming. CFS doesn't have that problem because instead of a weak error correcting checksum, CFS uses the Fletcher 4 cryptographic protocol. Again, it's cryptographic. It's not error correcting. Now, one of the other differences there is, you know, the the error correcting in ECC really does mean something. You can use the parity from an ECC checksum to repair a block that, again, only has one bit flipped. If more than one bit has been flipped, you can't repair it with your using the checksum. Now, you can't repair a block using a Fletcher 4 checksum whatsoever. However, your odds are... Uh, your odds against a hash collision, meaning corrupting data in such a way that it still matches the checksum, even though it's been corrupted, uh, they are one uh, to two to the 77th power against. So, I mean, we're talking astronomically unlikely hash collisions. Not going to happen. Yeah, even even if you are actively, you know, like as an intelligent opponent trying to find hash collisions to exploit, like it's a serious computational problem just just trying to manage this, much less have it, you know, happen in nature. Um, but you can't correct that, that data. You can't rebuild it using a Fletcher 4 checksum. So the Fletcher 4 checksum just tells you I have a problem. And now uh, we're relying on you being smart enough to have built your ZFS pool with some form of parity or redundancy. Uh, that might be redundancy as in a mirror, you know, you have two disks and there's one copy of each block on each disks, or it might be RAID Z1 or RAID Z2, uh, you know, which correspond pretty closely to the old RAID 5 or RAID 6, you know, striped RAID with parity. So if you discover that you've got a corrupt block in a, uh, on a VDEV that has parity or redundancy, what happens is you just say, okay, that one's bad. Let me either grab the other copy of that block from redundancy or reconstruct this block using all the rest of the blocks in the stripe plus the parity block. Now I, I uh, match that against its checksum, which it will have its own checksum entirely, you know, apart from the one that you just checked already on the corrupt block. Now, if this one matches, then I know that this block of data is good. So I feed you that block of data silently in the foreground and you just say, hey, I got my data. Everything's fine. And then quietly in the background, I overwrite that corrupted block with the new good copy that I rebuilt from parity or redundancy. And I just increment the checksum error column on my zpool status by one. And in a really extreme example of, you know, just how severe a catastrophe ZFS's checksumming can save you from, I had a customer system uh, in late 2018 where I needed to upgrade the hard drives in it. And I discovered that I had a massively failing hard drive in the pool that all of their virtual machines were stored on. And uh, I had started a scrub before I did the upgrade, and I just saw the checksum errors climbing and climbing and climbing on one of the two SSDs in the pool. And I actually took a picture with my camera because, you know, I'm in text mode, like I can't take an actual screenshot. But as I was watching this thing climb, it broke one million errors from one of these drives. And still down at the bottom of the Z pool status, it says no known data errors because it just corrected all of this from the other drive in the system. If you want to see that image of ZFS saving me from more than a million corrupt blocks of data without losing any of it whatsoever, you can go to jrs-s.net slash million.jpg. 1.17 million errors from the second SSD in the pool and no known data errors. That is incredible and should probably be more than enough reason to, to make anyone listening want to use ZFS. 
Yeah. And, you know, again, this is, we're not talking, you know, some dodgy old Western digital green hard drive on its last legs here. This was actually an Intel 480 gig solid state drive. So that solid state disk, it really was an outlier in just a number of ways. I mean, not only did it have a million blocks of data corrupted, they were, it had a lot more than that corrupt because, you know, these SSDs are also using error correcting checksums. And that was a million errors that made it past the basic line noise filter, right? But that's not typical. Uh, it's a lot more typical to see one or two checksum errors, you know, on a drive in the space of three or four years. But, uh, you know, just just one or two checksum errors, a couple of bits flipped here or there, they can make a bigger difference than you would think. If you want a more visual example of this, you can go to the Wikipedia article on data degradation, and you'll actually see an example that I cobbled together for Ars Technica a few years back. You can see a picture of my son with one bit flipped, two bits flipped, and then finally three bits flipped. And with just three bits flipped and a uh, 326K JPEG, the image, you almost can't even make out what's in it. That's a horrifying thought to someone who has way too many JPEGs sitting on several hard drives, right? And often those are those are important files that are that are some of your memories. We don't have big boxes full of photos anymore. We have hard drives full of JPEGs. If you're not actively taking care to preserve them, well, they're probably already gone. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of people don't realize it, but uh, JPEGs on storage that's not actually actively maintained and cryptographically checksummed in some way like ZFS does, that's that's going to be the equivalent of what Polaroids from the 70s are like now. Yeah. You can, uh, maybe maybe you finally remember them, but uh, they're not worth looking at anymore. Now, the, the final thing I want to mention, the final misconception that people tend to have is they think, oh, well, that's okay because, you know, my regular RAID will keep me safe. If I have corrupt data and I've already got a RAID mirror, or I've already got RAID 5, and it'll just reconstruct that data from parity or redundancy there, and I'll be fine. What you don't realize is that that RAID array, because it's not actually checksumming these blocks, it has no idea when it's feeding you corrupt data. It may, in fact, be entirely possible to reconstruct a good copy of a corrupt block from parity on a RAID 5 array or for redundancy on a mirror, but the file system has no idea what it fed you as garbage, and so it's not going to go try to reconstruct it for you either. Right. There's no safeguards. Now, Now, if it is, if, if it's all good, then things will work. But at any point, if corruption enters the system, there are no checksums being kept. So there's no way to keep track. Yeah. And, you know, I should mention the uh, the Wikipedia article on data degradation doesn't appear to mention it. But in the Ars Technica article that I originally wrote when I did that demonstration with flipping a few bits in that picture of my son, I actually did that flipping on a conventional RAID mirror and it didn't detect it. The other thing that comes to my mind immediately is is just thinking about backups, right? Like you need to test your backups. One of the reasons that you want to do that is because it, it's possible to have corruption there and you might get a bad system restore state or possibly you've got corruption in production and suddenly you're taking backups that are worthless. And even if you didn't have a way to immediately fix it, just having the property of knowing when you have corruption, that's all the better. So yeah, one of the things that, uh, you know, people who are experienced in the more sysadmin side of backup should hopefully realize is that a good backup system is going to already include some kind of parity so that you can check your backups for validity. Um, that may include a parchive is one of the more popular formats where you mm, have right. separate par files with separate checksums of all your files so that you can go through later and you can read in every file and you can read in the checksum for that file and you can make sure they all match. And that's that's a fine system as far as it goes, but it's pretty computationally and, uh, you know, storage wise expensive. 
Uh, it doesn't always scale very well, and it's very easy to just ignore it. And you know, I'm not going to actually do that. You know, whatever. Maybe we'll deal with it later. Um, it's a lot easier to do this kind of thing with ZFS. In fact, uh, you know, modern ZFS distributions, they ship with a cron tab already enabled that scrubs your system once a month. And what a scrub is, it just reads every single block on the system and it compares it to its checksum. And if it finds a problem, it increments the CK sum counter, rebuilds from parity or redundancy, again, assuming you have parity or redundancy, and uh, corrects it and you go on about your way. And you can do that both on the production system and on your backup system. That's a great explanation of just the incredible bounds that ZFS goes to try to keep your data safe. And I think it also kind of brings up the next, or, or one of the next points we could touch on. And ZFS is, is designed to be administered. It, it knows that you know there is going to be a user involved here, and it, it's not arcane. It has a whole set of tools that you can use to configure and monitor it, like zpool status. Maybe this is a good time to touch on a little bit of, of some of the ZF, ZFS basics, because part of the way it achieves all this magic is it's got a structure all its own. So the overall topology of ZFS, your your top level object is called a zpool. And the zpool is the entire storage array containing all of the file systems and uh, you know block collections and whatever else that you might have in storage. Now, zpool consists of one or more vdevs. VDEV is as in, you know, Victor Delta Echo Victor. It's short for virtual device. And the reason that it's virtual device is because the simplest type of VDEV is a single disk, whether it be, you know, an old school rust hard disk or it be a more modern solid state disk. Still, that's a single disk VDEV. But VDEVs don't have to just be single disk. VDEVs can also be mirrors, which is similar to the old, you know, RAID 1, where you just have a, a copy of each block on multiple disks. And that can be any number of disks wide. You can have a two disk mirror VDEV. You can have a 16 disk mirror VDEV if you want, although you'll be one of very few people if you do. You can also have a RAID Z VDEV. Now, RAID Z is a striped topology. Um, RAID Z1 is similar to RAID 5, where, say, you've got five disks in a RAID 5. You know, you have four disks worth of data and then one block of parity for those first four in each stripe across those five disks. RAID Z1 works much the same way, where entirely apart from the ZFS checksums, you've got, you know, traditional stripe. You've got four blocks of data and one block of parity in each stripe on the VDEV. Now, one way that RAID Z is a lot superior to the old RAID 5 or RAID 6 is it's possible to do a partial stripe write. Now, what that means is, you know, with traditional stripe RAID, let's say that you've got, you know, an a 12 disk wide stripe, but you only need to write 4K worth of data. That's a single disk block, right? It fits on a single disk. You're still unfortunately going to have to light up all 12 disks on your RAID array to write a full stripe with traditional RAID 5 or RAID 6. Now with a RAID Z, it can do a, uh, it's, it's got variable stripe width. So if you have to write 4K worth of data right now, on a RAID 5 array, no matter how many disks wide it is, you only have to light up two disks. You have to write up one to write the data block and one to write its parity. If it was a RAID Z2, similar to RAID 6, where you have two blocks of parity per stripe, you only have to light up three disks, one for the data block and one for your two blocks of parity. So this means that when you get into the type of workload that traditionally striped RAID is really, really terrible at, you know, anything involving a lot of random IO with small block operations, uh, like, you know, writing small files or, you know, in the worst cases, databases, virtual machines, whatever, 
RAID C is still not ideal for it, but it will beat the absolute pants off of traditional hardware RAID stripes. Right. But I do need to go back a little bit to the Z pool level. Another thing that a lot of people get wrong about ZFS is they think, well, I can have a single disk or I can have a mirror or I can have a stripe and that's my pool. That's actually not quite the way it works. You can have any number of these VDEVs in a pool. If you remember, I said a pool is made of one or more VDEVs. So let's say you've got a server that has 12 disk bays in it. Um, you could certainly make a single RAID Z2 VDEV that was 12 disks wide, and you could make that be your pool. Uh, however, your performance would not be ideal on that because the performance unit that most people bind on when they're looking for a highly performance storage array, it's actually not throughput. Throughput's measured in megabytes per second, and it's under ideal conditions just how much data can you fire hose on or off of that storage array. But that's not usually what people bind on with most workloads. What most people bind on, even with solid state disks, isn't throughput, it's IOPS. Now, IOPS is an, I, is an acronym for I.O. operations per second. And what happens is you usually have a workload that involves uh, more than you realize a lot of small random access reads and writes to the storage. And remember, that's that thing that I said that striped arrays were really, really terrible at. Well, when you're trying to calculate your storage needs, the thing that a lot of people don't realize is that for a striped array like RAID 5 or RAID 6 or RAID Z1 or RAID Z2, your IOPS does not trend towards the total number of disks. It trends towards the performance of a single disk, no matter how wide the stripe is. In fact, it actually gets worse the wider the stripe is because what you're really trending down towards is the performance of the slowest disk in the stripe. And that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, one disk is a different model and it's slower than all the rest. There's a little bit of variation in, you know, the latency involved in any given operation on any given disk drive. And so you're going to trend down towards whatever happens to be the slowest disk out of all the disks at that particular operation. So you really get way down into the weeds quick. Now, you can kind of hedge your bets here. Let's say again that you've got this same 12 base server and you don't want to go with, you know, just mirrors uh, because you're like, well, I need to get more storage capacity out of that. I, I, real, I, still, I really want to do striped arrays and get, you know, a little bit more data storage for my money out of this thing. Right. You're always, there's, there's a little bit of trade-off sometimes between redundancy and pure storage capacity. Absolutely. But what you can do is you can have two six-disc RAID ZV devs in your pool. You could have six two-disc mirror VDEVs in your pool. And what happens is the pool actually distributes reads and writes across all the VDEVs in the system. So if you have two six-disc RAID Z VDEVs in your pool, now you're going to trend towards the IOPS of two disks, not the IOPS of one disk. So this is a big improvement for anything that involves a lot of random I.O. And of course, your optimal uh, configuration, if what you really want is just complete... Uh, pant staining performance is going to be a pool of mirrors. Now, pool of mirrors is similar to the old hardware RAID 10. Um, in our 12-disc hypothetical server, a pool of mirrors would typically look like six two-disc mirror VDEVs. And what you get there is you get the right IOPS profile of six disks, and you get the read IOPS profile of all 12. Because ZFS, when you ask for a block that's on a particular VDEV, it can fetch it from either one of those two disks and leave the other one available for some other parallel operation. Now, one thing I've heard is is it can be tricky to to grow ZFS arrays. Is, is that true? Are there things I need to think about when I'm in this planning stage to make sure that I can scale this array as time goes and maybe I get some bigger disks? Yeah, there absolutely are. So 
people get pretty confused with the whole grow terminology. I don't really like it a lot. Um, what you can do with a lot of conventional raid types is you can reshape the arrays live. And by reshape, what I mean is you can convert a five disc raid five array into a six disc raid five array. You can just add a disc and tell it, okay, I want you to shuffle all the data around and redistribute all the blocks until it's been rebalanced. And now it's a six disc wide raid five. That's the thing that you can't do with ZFS. Um, you cannot start out with a five disc RAID Z1 and say, okay, well now I want this to be a six disc RAID Z1. Please redistribute everything around there. If you want to do that, you're going to have to back up all your data, destroy the pool, recreate it with the new disc as whatever topology you want, and then restore all your data. You also can't just add another disc and say, well, instead of being a RAID Z1, now I want to be a RAID Z2. Doesn't work that way. Again, you'd have to just, you'd have to back up all your data, destroy the pool, and then restore from backup. Now, the thing that you can do with ZFS you absolutely can replace older, smaller disks with newer, larger disks. Um, the capacity of a VDEV, whether it's RAID-Z or whether it's a mirror, uh, it's going to be based on the size of the smallest disk currently live in the VDEV. So let's say you've got a mirror VDEV with uh, two old one terabyte Western Digital hard drives. Um, you can replace one of those disks live with a new four terabyte hard drive and ZFS will then need to resilver, which means copy, you know, all the blocks back off of the uh, surviving member of the VDEV onto the new one. Once it's done that, you still only have a one terabyte mirror VDEV because you still have one remaining old one terabyte disk. But now when you offline that disk, replace it with another four terabyte disk, ZFS resilvers again. And once it's finished resilvering, now you only have four terabyte disks in your VDEV. Now that has become a four terabyte VDEV. I see. So once you've once you've added that final disk, then you can light up all the additional capacity that you've slowly been adding. Correct. And um, there's actually a ZFS setting that controls whether that happens automatically or not. But uh, in modern ZFS distributions, that defaults to on. So you don't really need to do anything special. Once you've replaced the last disk in your VDEV, it'll automatically resize. Now that does lead into uh, another topic. You know, when it when it comes to planning for expansion, and you you should always plan for expansion. It's okay. And, you know, one perfectly valid plan for expansion is, well, you know, I've built this server to be what this server is going to be. I expect it to last me for five years. And in five years, I'm going to build a whole new one and move all my stuff over to that and decom the old one. That's what a lot of businesses do. That's what a lot of businesses should do more than actually do it that way. That may be a, a, a little too grown up and expensive for a lot of folks, whether, you know, business or hobbyist. You may not be able to or want to afford, you know, the idea of saying, hey, I have to take on this giant expense of just building a whole new server, you know, every so many years. But that's where planning properly from the get go can really help you out. A lot of people are tempted, as I've said, towards those big striped VDEVs. They say, hey, well, you know, I want to get the most possible storage for my buck. So I've got these six bays. I want, you know, one RAID-Z array on there and I get five disks worth of storage out of my six disk array. I certainly would rather do that than do mirrors and only have three disks worth of storage out of my six disk array. The thing about that is, you know, a few years down the line, when you're, when you start to feel cramped on that six disk system and, you know, you want to start upgrading, now you're looking at having to replace every last one of those disks um, one in a row. You can't do, you know, multiple them at once. You have to do them one at a time, wait for each one to finish. You may actually be in the process of resilvering and swapping drives for more than a week before you're done and before you actually see any increased data. 
On the other hand, if you had started out with a pool of mirrors and you had three two-disc mirror VDIVs, now you only have to do two resilvers before you see increased storage available. And, you know, if this is a case where, like with a lot of people, by the time you want to upgrade, you may be talking about a really serious increase in the amount of capacity available, you know, on a cheap drive. Um, I built an awful lot of systems with one terabyte drives, you know, back in the day that, you know, are coming up due for drive replacement now. And what I paid for one terabyte disks back then, you can get six terabyte disks now for the same cost. So that's a huge increase. And, you know, in those systems, if you had this six bay server and three VDEVs, you could only replace two of those disks and immediately have gone from three terabytes worth of storage to now you've added an additional eight just by replacing those two disks. And the resilvers happen a lot quicker with mirrors than they do with striped VDEVs. So um, you can reasonably expect to get done with a, uh, you know, a resilver of a wind terabyte uh, mirror VDEV. You can reasonably expect that to finish in maybe two or three hours, where resilvering a disk from a wide stripe might take you, you know, days. So it's a big deal when it comes in terms of, you know, how can I live with this thing in the future without having to really kind of stretch my logistics capability to, to cover what I have to do in terms of single big purchases and, you know, long running operations. Uh, if you Google use mirror VDEVs, not RAID Z, uh, you will very quickly land on my site, jrs-s.net, and you can get a much more detailed and coherent uh, bit by bit explanation of all the reasons why I think you should be looking at mirrors. Do you have any other advice for the person just about to set up a new ZFS system or Maybe are there some places that you just wouldn't use ZFS? You know, th there are very, very few places that I wouldn't use ZFS. Um, the only general purpose computing devices in my possession that I'm not using ZFS on is the, uh, it's the small fleet of Chromebooks that I use for Wi-Fi testing. And uh, that's simply because, you know, they have a very limited amount of RAM and um, I don't really have any need for persistent data storage on those. You know, I make a run and I immediately move all the data off of them and onto my actual servers. So it's just not really worth the hassle there. But um, everything else, I use ZFS. There's a misconception that you need just enormous amounts of RAM for ZFS or you need, you know, ECC. There's that word again, you know, error correcting checksum RAM for ZFS. And those things aren't true. Yeah, I feel I feel like that holds up some people because they think they need to assemble this, you know, thousand dollar super server rig with fancy memory and tons of disks to get started with ZFS. But that's just not the case. No, it's absolutely not. Now, I, I will say I would definitely recommend having two gigs of RAM available for the Arc. That's uh, you know ZFS's adaptive replacement cache. Um, it has its own special file system cache and. Uh, Things go, it's stable with less RAM than that, but things move a lot quicker if you've got a nice, healthy, at least two gigs worth of cache. But you can accomplish that, you know, on an older machine that only has four gigs of RAM. You know, just, just plan on saying, okay, well, you know, two gigs out of this system is going to be used for cache, and I should expect that, and everything will work swimmingly. Um, anything smaller than that, uh, you you may very well have some some issues, some performance problems, and it might not be worth it. I mean, even my older systems these days have eight gigs in them, so it's just not much of a problem. You know, the other thing is you know, uh, ECC RAM, you know, server-grade RAM. There is a very widespread misconception out there that, uh, you know, ZFS is actively bad for your data if you don't have ECC, that if you don't have ECC, you shouldn't use ZFS because it will kill your data. 
that is a complete myth, and you will also very quickly find my exhaustive comprehensive breakdown on why on my site should you start Googling ZFS and ECC. In short, ECC RAM is a good thing, and if you can use it, you should use it, but ZFS doesn't need it any more than any other file system needs it. Wes, you asked about, you know, is there anything else that you want to tell anybody who's just about to get started with ZFS right now? And the one thing that I do just absolutely have to scream about is setting a value called A shift properly. Uh, A shift is a setting that corresponds to the underlying hardware block size of your disk drive or solid state drive that you're creating your ZFS storage array on. And by default, what ZFS does is it queries the drive and asks, hey, what hardware block size do you use? And the drive, in theory, says, hey, boss, I use 4K blocks. I mean, that sounds nice, right? Like the, the hard drive should know. Yeah, absolutely. The problem is that a lot of hard drives absolutely lie through their teeth because older operating systems, cough, cough, <coughs> Windows XP, would just absolutely lose their mind if uh, they saw a disk that actually admitted to anything other than a 512 byte sector. Ugh. So there are a lot of disk drives out there that they actually have 4K sectors, but they lie and they say, oh, I use 512 byte sectors. And now, if you format these disks using 512 byte sectors, I need to stress here that they will work. However, your performance actually goes through the crapper because what happens is you end up, if you want to write four 512 byte sectors, but the drive actually has a 4K sector, you write 512 bytes and you say, okay, that's one sector and you consume that 4K block. And then the next time that happens, you read in your 4K sector that only has one 512 byte virtual sector on it so that you know what the first one was. And then you tack a second one on there and then you write it back down again. And then the third one, you do it again. And the fourth one, you do it again. So you have this massive write amplification factor that just absolutely puts your performance in the doghouse. Right. So it works, but you just don't want to do that if you can avoid it. You really want to match what's actually happening underlying in the hardware. Yeah, and this is, I mean, it's not a subtle problem. If you set a shift too low, um, you can see, uh, you know, a fast Samsung solid state drive performing worse than like a Western Digital Black, which is, I mean, it's it's a good high performance hard drive, but it's rust. It should not be faster than a solid state disk. Um, and I, I wish there was a, a super easy way I could, you know, tell you to find all this stuff out, like, you know, what exactly, you know, what, what spec is my drive exactly? But hard drive manufacturers tend to play that pretty close to the chest and it's hard to find the actual specification. My advice is that if you don't know better, you should set a shift equals 12. That corresponds to a 4K block size and almost any modern disc is going to use at least 4K sectors. A lot of them, Again, looking at Samsung's solid-state drive, both the uh, the Evo and the Pro line, they actually use 8K sectors, which means A-shift equals 13. So when you create your pool, you want to say Z-pool, create pool name, dash O, A-shift equals 13, if you have Samsung disks. Um, also, if you ever add a VDEV to a pool, because that's another way to expand your ZFS storage. So you've got that 12-bay server that we talked about before. Maybe you only put six disks in it to start out with, and you say, well, I want to add another new two-disk mirror to the pool now. And you can do that. Uh, you say uh, ZPool add uh, you know, mirror and uh, then the path to your disks. But the A-shift is actually set per VDEV, not per pool. So whenever you do that, you again also need to specify your A-shift to the correct value. Well, if somehow, after all this, you're not convinced ZFS is the secret weapon you've always been needing, 
Jim, you're giving a talk that should have even more details, right? Coming up at Linux Fest Northwest. Absolutely. I'll be at Linux Fest Northwest on the 28th of this month, and uh, I'll be presenting at 3 o'clock on getting the most out of ZFS, why you should use it, and how to get more of it if you already are. And we will go into much deeper detail on the inner workings of ZFS and how to tune it for better performance and more efficiency. I'm looking forward to it. If you'd like more Jim, you can also follow him on social media. He's on Twitter at JRSSNet. I'm there too. I'm at West Payne. Thank you all for joining us. We'll see you right back here next time.